up? What are we talking about? <laughs> it's like Sorry. it's like actually one of the more degrading things someone could ask me after I spent four hours <laughs> prepping for this episode. <laughs> Startup stuff. Oh God, you're such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, read those, I read most of those notes while I was getting pricked. I'm literally the, sitting here with a, with a beautiful mind's worth of information. <laughs> with the needle, dude. I read it. When uh, when Rihanna walked in the room, the other two girls disappeared. Yeah, exactly. I read it. I read the whole thing. What's up, everyone? I'm Alex Lieberman. Yo, this is Jesse Puji. And this is The Crazy Ones. Okay, we're back with episode 25 of The Crazy Ones. We have an awesome lineup today, but uh, first, just want to do a little uh, life update, work update with um, Jesse and myself. Jesse, what's going on in your world? Uh, you know, it's the grind. It's uh, We're taking sales calls. We've got, uh, for Kahani, you know, we've got uh, a bunch of people who are signed up for trials and so it's kind of an exciting moment where we're going to, you know, we sort of said, hey, we got to make these next 10 customers the happiest, best customers ever. My engineering lead, Adam, he's a wonderful product engineering guy. And so he's like, we're basically talking to the customers constantly and saying like, what else do you need? What can we build? Uh, and it's almost like a services approach to product. Like as we hear things, we're like, okay, we should build that. We should build that. And so... And just what one quick thing. You said uh, you have these 10 customers that are going through trials right now. Is... Is a trial with Kahani uh, a free trial for like 30 days and then they pay? Or is it a lower tier that goes into a higher tier? What is it? It's 30 days as? free. And what we're trying to do is validate, you know, 5 to 10x ROI on the software based on lift that it generates, revenue lift that it generates. And so what we found is that when people engage with Kahani, their conversion, their time on site, somewhat intuitively all jumps and improves dramatically. And so you're trying to validate that with the customers during that trial. By the way, uh, outside of work, you you went uh, skiing, right? Yeah, beginner. Went down a was, few was greens. That, was that your first time ever or you've skied before? It wasn't my first time ever, but more or less was my first time ever. I, I like, you know, sporadically went two or three times as a kid, as like a teenager or a kid, and just like did it for half a day. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And so then I went two weeks ago with my kids for the first time in a, there's like a local place here called Hidden Valley. It's like a tiny little hill and like got brushed up. And then I went to to Deer Valley, which was, it's so gorgeous. Like I want to go back oh, as soon as I can. Oh, it's, it's incredible. Uh, when we end up skiing together, the first thing I'm going to do is to te teach you how to dress the part because I saw a picture of your ski outfit and it looks like you were a skier from 1955 wearing uh, <laughs> wooden planks on your feet. You had, Jesse had the full getup with the, the, um, the suspender, the suspender one piece style ski pants, which I haven't seen I had someone wear pants on, dude. Awesome. <laughs> 30 what years. So I'm going to teach him how to dress the part when uh, we go skiing together. <laughs> What about you? What's uh? Are we gonna get Kahani on the plunge? To show um, I mean, to me, that's a best case scenario. If if the plunge ends up being successful, or when it ends up being successful, and we have a successful Kickstarter launch, uh, you know, I'll be a customer of Kahani. The plunge is progressing. China is getting back to their factories from Chinese New Year. I didn't realize it's a month long process of basically factories being closed in China because hundreds of millions of people emigrate to their homes for the holiday, and then they have to emigrate back. So factories are back. So we're testing the product. I'm going through the Kickstarter pre-launch process. I have 17 social videos ready to go as soon as the site is up. So uh, 
things are moving and it's uh, very close to uh, crunch time to see if people actually want this product or not. Do you feel nervous? I do feel nervous. <laughs> I, I, we're we're going to talk about it in the episode, what it Alex looks like. Alex, one-hit wonder Lieberman. Oh, God. He, he, Your biggest fear? Je, yeah, Jesse is just speaking my biggest fear right now. No, <laughs> I, I have enough confidence now, though, to say even if this doesn't work out, it, I'm going to just keep taking at-bats uh, until something does work out. But um, we're going to talk about it later in this episode, what it looks like to effectively test um, business ideas and how to validate them. Because I actually think while I've been pretty cheap and scrappy with the plunge, I've spent $20,000 on it so far. I actually think there are ways that I could have tested this for far less and known more. So uh, with that, let's hop into the episode. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Crazy Ones. We're on episode 25. It's uh, it's crazy how many episodes we've been through. It feels like we started this show yesterday. We have an awesome lineup today. We are going to be talking about the business of Rihanna. We had to talk about her after her Super Bowl performance. Uh, then we're going to be getting into startup ideas and specifically how to test them. Everyone wonders when they have an idea for a business, like how do I, for in the cheapest, quickest way possible, know if there's actually something here or not? We're going to talk about that. And then we're going to follow up or finish up with Startup AMA, where um, an awesome listener asked us basically, how much should you tell your company versus not tell your company in terms of the numbers? So let's do this thing. Um, Jesse, did you watch the Super Bowl slash halftime show? I did. I did. What Go do you Chiefs. Think? Go, I, I call them the Missouri Chiefs now, by the way. Uh, Are you a Chiefs fan? I am. I'm a Missouri Chiefs fan. Well, so my my history of the NFL, I was a huge Rams fan. I mean, the die is hard Rams fan you could imagine. I watched Sunday Ticket every Sunday for ten years while the Rams were terrible. Because mm-hmm. you know the Kurt Warner era, you might have been oh, yeah. a little young for that. No, no, but, no. Okay. He he was huge when I was growing up. And and then you know they scorched the earth when they left St. Louis. Like they, it wasn't like they were like, thanks St. Louis, we're gonna go to L.A. It was like they they like shat on the city for for you know they wrote a 40 page paper about how st louis is a terrible place and they like defrauded you know they ultimately settled for a billion dollars st louis i I didn't know any of what you just said i didn't know they wrote a 40 page paper i didn't know that there was was, a lawsuit it was all bad faith so then i like between that i watched that movie concussion with will smith and then my son was born which means like sundays i didn't have all day to sit around watching football anymore didn't want to i kind of just stopped becoming an nfl fan and then i moved back to st louis and basically nobody talks about the rams here everyone talks about the chiefs and so now I'm just like, yeah, the Missouri Chiefs. So I, I, it's not. I don't quite. My heart's not there in the same way. Like it would be for the. It was for the Rams or the Cardinals. But but yeah, hey, I'm a Chiefs fan. Why not? Yeah, I feel like they. You know, there's actually like a a uh, a not a good soft spot, like a bad soft spot in your heart from just everything that went down with the Rams after like a lifetime of following this team, and it seems like. You know, of all the ways for a team to leave a city, they didn't do it in necessarily uh, the most no. graceful way. But anyway, I watched Rihanna's awesome. I've, what do you what do you think about the halftime show? Wife, you know, she's on my list of five. <laughs> she's a little old now, but you know, oh my god, when I was younger, uh, um, she's, it was what awesome. What do you think about that? You thought it was good. I was I, I appreciated in his very Rihanna style how she didn't have anyone else show up. Like, yeah, normally I thought it was going to happen. She's like, nah, I got this. I've got so many songs. I've got so much point. Like you know, can, can get everyone's attention. It was awesome. Yeah, I want to uh, just call out a few things about the halftime show before we talk about kind of just like the 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 story of Rihanna and why in so many ways I think there are lessons that entre- entrepreneurs can learn from how she's built businesses around herself. The first thing is, uh, do you know how much she was paid for the show? I know, zero. Blew zero dollars. 
Yeah, zero dollars. Uh, Super Bowl acts or uh, <laughs> halftime acts do not get paid for the show. She does though that the Super Bowl pays a very healthy amount of money for producing the show. So the Super Bowl fronts fifteen million dollars. That's how much wow. they yeah they front fifteen million dollars uh, for between two and three thousand part time workers. Uh, the lights, the actual production, the marketing. If you go over that number, then you have to pay for it. So like I think I read Dr. Dre, um, and The Weekend each spent seven million dollars above. Uh, the wow. quota for their shows. Um, the interesting thing, so if you watch the show, she basically turned this show into an ad, right? So Fenty Beauty, right? It's now like this screenshot all over the internet, especially in uh, the e-commerce uh, part of Twitter, where she took out her Fenty Beauty mirror and she put on makeup mid-show. Yeah, yeah, and... I think this happens with any act, but it was interesting to see searches for Fenty Beauty are up 883% after the show. Now, I do wonder how much it actually impacts sales because if you look at like Google search trends, Fenty went from call it like in the 20s to 100 at the time of the show and now it's like back down to like 30-ish. So you're going to get that that bump, but I thought what was really cool about it is first of all, a Super Bowl ad cost $7 million. So she basically got a free ad. Second, she did it in that was the most obvious way well, that she, she hold showed on. she got like 10 free ads to be clear cuz the super bowl ad is 30 seconds long <laughs> oh oh yeah yeah it totally so she her show was 15 minutes so she got like the world's <laughs> longest ad she also had like i would say the most obvious advertisement but there was a lot of native advertisement that was going on that you had no idea about so for example like all of her backup dancers were wearing Savage Fenty, which is her lingerie brand. They were mm -hmm. all wearing her clothing. They were all wearing the beauty products. If you go to Fenty Beauty right now, you can buy Rihanna's Super Bowl look, right? So they have yeah. all of the products that she wore and you can buy it. Um, I don't know how they come up with these numbers, but supposedly, supposedly there was $5.6 million in estimated media impact value. I have no freaking idea how they calculate these things. They feel very arbitrary to me, but $5.6 million in estimated media impact value for Fenty Beauty and $2.6 million for Savage Fenty. But I think the craziest part of this whole story is that Rihanna is like not a musician anymore. And I don't mean to say that in the way like I'm, you know, dissing her not producing music, but it's been amazing to just see how she has reinvented herself in her career, right? She hasn't come out with an album. Her eighth album came out, I believe, in 2016. So she hasn't come out with an album in seven years. She hasn't wow. performed publicly in four years. And so I think like the really interesting story here is how she was able to reinvent herself and how she made the vast majority of her wealth, $1.8 billion in net worth. I believe 1.6 of it is from her two businesses, Fenty Beauty right. and Savage Fenty. And hold on. I mean, I, I you kind of buried the lead there. She's like a multi-billionaire. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it's incredible. And, I don't think most people know that, right? I mean, you think of Rihanna, you think of like club jams. <clears throat> you don't think of like multi-billionaire astute businesswoman, which she clearly is. Yeah, and... I think, you know, there are there are so many lessons to learn from her story, but I would say just just for a second, like I don't think people realize how massive Fenty is. Like I really didn't know anything about Fenty because I'm not, you know, in the demo for the product, but like this thing, it launched in 2017 and she launched mm -hmm. as a 50 50 
joint partnership with LVMH. And it was done through Kendo, which is like LVMH's uh, product incubator. Mm-hmm. And she did by 2018, so a year after it launched, it was doing $550 million in revenue. Oh my God. $550 million in revenue in 2018. Uh, and at that time, it was the valuation of Fenty was reported at $2.8 billion. And they haven't reported numbers on the business since then. But I know last year they said sales doubled in Fenty. So if you just use like the most um, conservative numbers and you look at what LVMH does like in their business. So revenue for perfume and cosmetics for LVMH in 2022 mm-hmm. was $7.72 billion. At minimum, let's say Fenty's revenue is $1.1 billion. But it's way more than that because I'm just taking the 2x of 500-something million from 2018. Right. That means that Fenty Beauty accounts for at least 15% of all of LVMH's beauty sales. It's like this thing is a behemoth. And I think one of – there's two huge lessons just from this brand. One is this idea that, you know, as we see all these creator companies launch businesses, I think the very easy – pit that creators are going to fall into is they're going to say, I have a massive freaking audience. If I launch anything, any product that my audience cares about, it will be successful. And they are actually, I would say for massive uh, influencers like Rihanna, they are probably right to some extent. Like they can do quick money grabs, but to build a brand that truly is bigger than Rihanna, like I believe Fenty will be known as a brand long beyond Rihanna and people won't associate it with Rihanna in the future. To do that, you really need to create a brand that's truly differentiated that would have been a great product and a movement outside of the creator. And so like there's actually like a phrase now. It's known as the Fenty effect. And like Mm. Fenty is known for bringing awareness to inclusivity in makeup because I didn't realize all this, but like the whole pitch of Fenty is that there are so many women of color that never had options for their makeup. And they were the first beauty brand, their first product, their foundation, they came out with 40 shades of the product. And one of their original advertisements was 40 women, all different skin colors wearing Fenty. And like, that was a massive underserved audience. Rihanna being one of the people in that audience who felt like they were underserved before that. So I just think that's a huge thing, which is like creator brands can be big, but to truly have them grow outside of the person themselves, it has to be a movement in itself. Yeah, I think I think the some of the principles for me, you know, as you're talking, I think one is you know, I mean I say this all the time, leverage your unfair advantage. <laughs> you know, she two at least two unfair advantages. She's obviously widely known and then she knows the problem that this customer has because she is the customer in totally. this case, right? And I think what you're saying is it can be a great spark to get things going, but it's it can't be the end all be all. You still have to go build a real business and a real brand and I think uh, I've, I've seen similar things with like growth assistant, like that's an audience I know they trust me. They want to get the, you know, they could potentially get someone offshore from anywhere, but no, they come to us because they, they, they believe that it's going to be different and better because of my, my, my name, my brand, my experience. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting is like, just, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs listening to the show, like, man, the value of ownership is just so compelling, right? Like there's this new movie coming out. You and I should go see it together, uh, called air. Have you seen this? No, but I assume it's about the Jordan brand. It's about the Jordan brand, but it's specific. There's a big controversy over who actually signed Jordan and who actually got that deal done. And so it's actually, it explores that controversy. But obviously we all know Air Jordan. We know that that's a a huge part of 
of his wealth and his legacy yep. and Nike's success. And yes, he's made billions of dollars, but man, he's made nothing compared to what he's generated, right? He's very much been an employee, not an owner. And yeah, it's I think a licensing her deal, case, right? Yeah, totally. And and in her case, she's what a fifty percent owner or whatever, thirty to fifty percent owner of these things. And I bet I bet her revenue is ten percent of what Jordan's, you know, Nike's revenues are associated with him. But she's probably made more money from it. And so the the value of ownership. As, and I think it's the right thing for these celebrities and a lot of these folks to get involved in because they are the ones driving the success of these of these ventures. Yeah, I think to your point, like deal structure really does matter. And yeah, I was reading on Jordan, you know, he's made $1.3 billion from the shoe, but he makes on average 10 to 15 bucks a shoe because he's getting 5% of sales. He It's just a 5% licensing fee. Right. Where to your point, she has 50-50 in... Fenty Beauty. So I think the way the original deal worked out was uh, LVMH put $30 million in. She had to contribute $30 million in in-kind contribution. So her right. time, her marketing, et cetera. And then I think she also owns uh, a third of Savage Fenty, which is her lingerie brand. So yeah, like the structure matters a ton. You know, the other thing I'll just point out about this uh, story and about her story is First of all, I didn't realize just like how young Rihanna is because she's been around for so long, but yeah. she's 34 years old. She came out with her first album when she was 17 after she was signed by Def Jam in 2005. 2005. Also, fun fact, I didn't realize this. Did you know Jay-Z discovered her? And when he yeah, first discovered yeah. her, I didn't realize this. When he first discovered her, he actually like was kind of iffy on her. Then she performed a second time for him and he was like, okay, yeah, she's not leaving the room until we sign her. But it it goes back to our conversation about Richard Branson, which is like the the thing that to me is remarkable about Richard Branson is similar to what you were saying about Rihanna. Like he leans into just what he's great at and he builds infrastructure around that, but also he's not afraid of taking at bats. And what you see with all these people of massive businesses or with many of them is like you see the home run, but then very few people talk about like the strikeouts or the singles that were hit before that. So when I look, I was going through her story there are so many other products that she has built or been a part of that you have no idea about because this is just the big win. Like right. she did her first makeup deal with MAC Cosmetics in 2013. Uh, she ended up doing another collaboration in makeup in, I think, 2015. Like all of these things were baby steps to ultimately launch this brand in 2017. And so I think it's just important to point out because it wasn't like this was her one and done thing. Like she didn't yeah. find lightning and, in a bottle. And I, like we shouldn't underestimate LVMH as a powerhouse business backed with, a, you know, that that likely had a lot to do with the success, right? It gets immediate distribution into Sephora, gets... Yep. So I'm sure they are, they, they've earned their 50% also, right? Totally. So all of this to say... Rihanna's a badass. Um, she has found so much success outside of just music. Uh, and, you know, the, and the she fun... performed pregnant in front of like a billion people, which is and she crushed it. Which yeah, is there's that there's noteworthy. that small detail. Also, to <laughs> me, like one of the coolest parts about it is she's always talked about how her biggest idol is Madonna. And the, the funny part about that is Rihanna is the uh, second most selling female artist of all time in terms of albums. Madonna's number one. And wow. the reason Rihanna said that she loves Madonna so much is because she loves how she was able to reinvent herself constantly. And so like, mm -hmm. it's actually a very interesting thing to see. Like Rihanna has done exactly that from having just like this deep appreciation for a woman who proved that. And um, yeah, I think the the final thing that 
I walk away from her story with is like, this woman has had so deeply understands the value she brings to the world. And she's found so many ways to monetize that value. So like I was going through, what are all the ways that Rihanna makes money? And it's like 10 different ways. She's right. made money from movies, from her music, sponsorships like uh, Samsung, one of her early tours, Samsung paid $25 million to be a sponsor of her tour. She has her beauty product, lingerie, fragrances. She's supposedly coming out with a hair product. She just like basically anywhere where she's a knowledgeable customer, she launches something and then she leverages her distribution to help launch the thing. Yeah. And there's kind of this formula. You see it across Branson. You see it with her like get really good at one thing to get you to a certain level. And then you can kind of fan out and do a variety of different things. And yep. I think that's one theme. The other big one for me is like, <clears throat> especially on entrepreneurship, Twitter and some of these other things, everyone's so focused on doing it the right way versus doing it their way. And this is something I've, I've like had to dial back in myself. Cause I just used to be like, Oh, what's the right way? What's the right answer? How do you, you know? And it's like, no, how do you, what do you want? And can you actually just sort of do what you want and what, what speaks to you versus trying to get the answer right. And I think like, you couldn't draw up her, her story to do it right, but she kind of just was herself and found her own problems and, and made it happen, which I think is awesome. Totally. Uh, all in all, Rihanna absolutely crushes it. She's the goat. And, uh, I'm sure we're going to continue to see more business success from her. Next topic on the show is business ideas and not just how to think of them, but how do you actually test them and, and how do you learn quickly in the cheapest, quickest way possible, whether it makes sense to pursue or not? We're going to talk about it in a second, but first a word from the folks who pay our bills. Take your business further with a smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. We were, we were brainstorming ideas for... Uh, today's show and one of the I sent you a bunch of ideas about like big you know problems that early stage startups go through and I think your your response was like let's combine a lot of these into this one topic the one topic being like validating uh ideas for startups why was that one that you landed on like why do you why do you feel like that's a really important topic to talk about yeah I, I think there's there's kind of two angles I I feel around it one is like the call, you know, people get on the phone, Hey Jesse, can I get your advice? Can we talk about something? And they'll give me this pitch. And I'll just oftentimes find myself asking like, well, have you, have you sold this to any customers? Like, no, I talked to 10 and I validated. I'm like, but have you ever pitched it to them? Have you asked them for money? No, I haven't. Um, you know, and I obviously appreciate visionaries. We talked about that with brands and I myself think of, you know, think of the future and where it's going to be. But I often just find entrepreneurs getting stuck with either, overbaking their idea before they actually go into the world or like severely underbaking it and not being realistic with themselves. And I thought it'd be a great topic to kind of flush out. The other reason, by the way, for, for people who work inside of companies, it's actually an experience I've had with a lot of people who work for me is I will go, oh, we should do blah, 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 blah. And you'll see their face and they'll kind of be excited then they'll get overwhelmed. And then they've interpreted what I've said as like, go build, you know, a skyscraper 
when what I what I really want them to do is like throw up a throw up a balloon and just see if if the thing works or not, right? And so even for those listening who aren't maybe entrepreneurs, you said it and I wanted to say it again is like what is the cheapest fastest way you can get anything going and you can start to try anything. And I think that question isn't just a for a founder, but it's it's for especially employees at startups. When someone talks about an idea, your immediate thing should go cheapest, fastest, cheapest, fastest, and and try to go figure out whether or not that there's a there there. The other, the third thing, by the way, is that interesting is it's pretty different in my experience from B two B versus B two C, and so figuring that part of it out, I think, is is uh, is another piece that's worth talking about. Yeah, well, I I can just start by talking about how I tested or I plan to test, you know, my new backyard game, and also like ways that I think. In hindsight, now that we're having this conversation, you know, selfishly, I wish we had this conversation a month ago because it would have saved me some time and money is ways I think I could have tested it better. And then I want to hear. I don't want to give you cheap, fast ways. I want you to write a big check and make this business work. I'm sick of this uh, testing and experimenting for you, Alex. Um, I want to hear. And after I talk about that, I want to hear the ways that you've tested or haven't tested any of your three businesses within Gateway. So. For the, I talk about it ad nauseum, but if you're a new listener, I'm building the plunge. It's an uh, axe throwing for your backyard. Uh, and instead of axes, you throw plungers. And so my plan to test um, if there's viability for this game has been to do two things. It's been to create social uh, videos of me playing friends in the game, post them on TikTok and Instagram and all the places you can put short form social and drive the viewers of that video to a landing page and on that landing page you can put in an email and ultimately reserve a spot to get the game and i'm launching on kickstarter i think it's a good plan but here's where i think i went wrong so i've spent twenty thousand dollars on the game so far twelve thousand of that is r d eight thousand is an agency that's helping with me me with my kickstarter launch i actually think there's two ways i could have done this way cheaper and gotten more of a sense earlier on. The first is, I think I could have actually not created the product at all. I think I could have created a high-res 3D drawing by an artist on Fiverr of the actual game, have a landing page that I drive traffic to, and then just drive people to it and see if people would put a dollar down to reserve their spot to buy the game. The second way is I could have Instead of using a product designer in Brooklyn who I've spent $12,000 with, I could have just built the most crude version of the game myself, literally going to Home Depot one weekend, get a face and two pieces of plywood and just play it at the park for a few weekends straight, see if people come up, see people's experience with the game, create those social videos, do the same exact thing, but not spend $12,000 in R&D. Now, I will be somewhat kind to myself and say, I do wonder what kind of like what is the threshold of getting good enough information to know if you're getting good signal versus bad signal said differently yeah. like if i went to that park with like the crude thing that i built and no one came up to me does that mean that i shouldn't right. pursue the game like how do you think about that yeah the experience of of quote unquote testing an idea as he said is is so riddled with false positives and false negatives that it's like it's kind of hard like i i think the the some of the venture studios like atomic those guys have done so many things that they actually have good benchmarks and I realized when we started doing some of the experimenting, I'm like, oh, great. I see numbers, but I don't know what they mean. And and like they actually have benchmarks. They know that if they start running some fake Facebook ads and and certain things happen, that actually means something versus not. Right. And I think it is hard to know. And and there is this tension. Like 
when I started Ampush, and I, I got you guys did a little different with Morning Brew, but like I do think that commitment is worth a lot. Just saying, I'm gonna try this for two years, I'm gonna go all in, I'm not gonna do it as a side project. And I think, you know, depending on your age and your your personal situation, like I think that can be a really valuable thing. That doesn't mean you're not gonna try do experiments and tests and work your way into things, but it is a it is a way to be because you will find ways to figure it out. And and everything I've ever done the first or second time doesn't work anyway. So it's kind of tough to uh and to, to wait, is that and how I agree you approached you. it? Is that how you approached it with Kahani? Like with Kahani, were you just like mobile sites could be better, they should look more like TikTok. I'm gonna go build this and I'm gonna dedicate time until I find a solution that looks like something like this people want. Not exactly. You know, so the I think the concept of we call them waypoints internally, which is kind of a sailing metaphor. Some people call them stage gates or like video game levels that you can't get to level two yeah. until you beat the boss on level one. And I think it's a good framing for some of this stuff. So, you know, our first thing we did, we did it in probably less than a month, was we created a thing that was just the circles at the top of the screen. And they just linked to other parts of the site. And we got like five friends of who had Shopify sites to throw it on their sites. And the only question we were wondering that our stage gate was, will people actually engage with this? Because if only 3% of the traffic engages with it, this is a kind of a DOA business. Like it's not going to have any impact on the site. So was it there and was no actual content? It was literally just the circles. And if you clicked the on the circle with a thumbnail and you would click and it would nav you to another part of the site. Yeah. It would just go to like the pants page of, of the site. Correct. But yeah. what we saw was that it actually it got like 15, 20% engagement. It was the highest engaged with thing on the page. So boom, we got really excited. And and not only that, but in many cases, it actually helped sales because it sort of directed a person to the hero product. And we said, oh, that's really interesting. How do you know it was the circles and not just the fact that it was the highest thing on the page? Uh, we didn't, but it's not important, right? Because as long as you're, as long as that's how you're going to sell the product. I got it. It, it. It's like, how do you know that the cologne makes you smell good or get women? <laughs> like, it doesn't matter if you're going to use the cologne. It, yeah. Like, it doesn't, it it doesn't really matter what the issue yeah, yeah. is, right? But but so then and then from there the next stage gate was like okay let's build the actual front end of the product we didn't build a CMS like we were uploading the content via spreadsheets and JSON files when we did our private beta that's how how scrappy we were about it and then we just wanted to see like does it actually hold up as the whole product does it actually work got a bunch of we gave, gave the software away we, we we did charge people a little bit we charged them a few hundred bucks a month just to make sure they weren't just being nice to me and we wanted to see what what's going to happen and again we saw we saw a strong performance from it in terms of revenue lift and conversion. And that's when we actually decided to raise funding for it. Right. And so think so about that for a you second. You didn't raise, you didn't have like the CMS that uh, companies could actually load their stuff into until None after you raised money. Well, uh, no, we, we started building that after the private beta and then we started Got raising it. money, but like it, it, we definitely stage gated it out to figure it out. And it, I think the other thing I just, I kind of once over it. So I think it's an important thing is, we got out and we sold the product to people. And one of the beauties of B2B anything, like the the original business of Ampush, there was this other division we started and then we realized Facebook ads were going to be huge. And I was talking to the this young guy who, was, who worked for us re, right after the sale. And I'm like, do you remember how we started in the Ampush of today? And he's like, I completely remember it. And he's like, and here's how we started it. We got on a whiteboard. I drew a grid for 20 slides, we mocked up a story about how Facebook was going to take over the world and how we were the best in the world at Facebook. And we went and we just said, we went to LinkedIn and said, hey, can you, will you meet with us? Will you meet with us? Hey, daily deals. Hey, gaming companies. Like we could, we knew who was spending on it. And after 
10 phone calls, two said yes. And guess what? We had a business, right? And so like that, to me, B2B, the beauty of it is, that's how we started growth, exactly how we started growth assistant. We, we put a little collateral, we had a website, we had a deck, and we started getting on the phone and calling people and saying, hey, this is the thing you need. And that people, oh yeah, that's a great thing. I'd love to get that. And so that's the one thing about B2B that I think is beautiful is you can just get on the phone and start pitching people. You see their reactions, you get their feedback. It's, it's in some ways, it's way easier than B2C. Uh, yeah. In my experience, B two C, I, I think the the thing I oftentimes push people on, they'll have stuff like there's a guy recently who was like, "We want to do, we want to sell mindfulness to company to insurance companies in order to like bring down medical bills." Oh, that's kind of cool. Like, and heard that and had this whole plan for like a software module and how they were going to code. It's a huge, a huge plan, and I was like. Do you can like start a newsletter on this topic for HR totally. people? Does it mindfulness like could you just see if anyone's going to sign up and read the things that you're going to write first? Because that dude, it costs nothing to do that, right? Totally. And and there's a little bit of pushback, and I said, yeah, you can do all that big stuff you're talking about, but man, if if you don't get people engaging with you on this, or you know, not and not only that, you also learn there's a there's a complexion or color that you learn in any of these things that I think is also not necessarily yes or no binary. But like, oh, what type of content do they engage with? When do people reply to emails? What gets people? And so, you know, it's not just the yes or no signal. Uh, you know, your example of, of the plunge, whether five people showed up to play it or 25 people showed up, that may or may not have been a signal. But what would be really interesting is what people liked about the game, what they found annoying yep. about it. Th- that's where the the color and the complexion come in. Um, it'd be really interesting and- if you charge people two bucks to play the plunge to see, yeah. oh, I'm not paying you two bucks for that. Like. No way. Totally. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. And it's funny that you bring up the idea of creating a newsletter because I do think like content, we we live in an age where actually the ability to create content so cheaply is like such a massive unlock that entrepreneurs didn't have 20 years ago to test businesses. And I was actually thinking about this as, so there, there are a few business ideas that I've been thinking about that I was kind of taking through this process of if I wanted to test them as low cost, but high fidelity as possible, what would that look like? So one of the ideas is basically a, uh, like consumer reports or consumer review for, uh, startup software. So like a site that has reviews and ratings on startup software. And so I was saying to myself, like, yeah, exactly. Just like a, a G2 that's more kind of startup focus like i would say a lot of founders i talk to don't really know g2 i feel like it right. it has more of a stranglehold on enterprise and so uh i was thinking to myself like okay i have this idea of call it like a newer better branded uh startup facing g2 how do i test it to know if there's appetite and so it's like last night i actually by accident started testing it so last night mm-hmm. i tweeted out basically a tweet saying you know, I haven't built a business in eight years and I have to figure out all these tools I'm using again to build the business. And I, I listed out the stack of software that I'm using and it blew up overnight as 3000 likes, a million views. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. People, what, what does that tell me? It tells me there's some level of interest in people understanding the software stack that startup founders use. What I also learned from it is one of the people that I listed in that tweet was the person who helped me with trademarking. It's a mm-hmm. lawyer who's big on uh, on Twitter for for helping with trademarks. And I DM'd him saying, 
yo, just out of curiosity, did this drive any business for you? And he responded basically being like, I don't know how I'm ever going to be able to repay you, but I am climbing <laughs> out of the deepest hole of DMs right now. I'm like, okay, that's really interesting. Like drove a lot of traffic for him. By the way, my other idea about affiliating my life. Now I'm thinking about how do I become an affiliate for all of these tools I listed. But so then I'm like, okay, there's something interesting here. How do I take this a step further? And I started thinking, okay, maybe I start with a newsletter where I send out a newsletter on a specific type of software. Maybe it's HR software. And I go through all of the big HR startup HR software platforms their rating, their pros and cons, see what people think about it. What are the questions they ask? And yeah. so like to me- You can start, like, I tell you about my idea. I, I had an idea I wrote up uh, like a couple of years ago called SaaS Pass. No. <clears throat> and so like the, have you heard of Founders Card? Yeah, yeah, It's like, it's the card. You get all the, the benefits yeah, so for it's like, as It's like founder. an Amex Platinum kind of, right? You pay 500 bucks a year and yep. then you get like all these discounts. And so that business- allegedly rumor has it does like eight figures in top line and yep. 80% EBITDA margin. I have heard that as well. <laughs> <clears throat> and, and so I was like, man, it's such a good business model. Cause you go to the, the companies and you tell them, Hey, the, the discount you're giving me is branding. It's like marketing for you. Yep. And then you go to people who need the stuff and you can like, so if we sold SaaS pass a thousand dollars, a startup, Right, you pay pay us a thousand bucks, and then in exchange, you immediately get ten thousand in value because we get you a cheaper subscription to HubSpot and Dropbox and all the, you know, Gusto, totally. all the things you named basically. Mercury Bank, you get two hundred dollars immediately at Mercury Bank when you sign up. Boom, dude! That's a dude, once you get your newsletter it. going, that's the that's the business that we launch on top of it. Seriously, I, uh, I love that. SaaS and pass. I, I like that. No, seriously, I I kind of want to start that now. Um, I, so for, for people that are listening, you know, I just want to make this kind of concrete. By the way, thanks for mentioning growth assistant in that tweet. (laughs) Well, I don't, you know, it requires making money as a business in order to hire one of your growth assistants. (laughs) That's how you get team. That's their first team members. Those are my first team members I had growth assistants. It's true. Uh, I will be using growth assistant the second that the plunge actually brings in customers (laughs) for now. we're, We're just a business that holds a shit ton of plungers as inventory. Um, but I just want to talk about like for listeners who, are th- who have a startup idea or have built businesses and they're thinking about testing new ideas, a few, I would say, proven models for testing your ideas. And Jesse, if you have feedback, you like them, don't like them, let me know. So the first one, and I didn't come up with all these ideas myself. I tweeted about it because normally I, whenever I have a question, I'm like, I don't have all the answers in my head. I'm going to ask people on the internet that are smarter than me. And so... The first idea, and I would say this is the most common way that people talk about low-cost, high-fidelity testing of an idea, and it's known as the smoke test, which is basically you build a a dummy site, uh, you have a call to action that drives someone to do something, either put in an email, sign up, pay, and you just drive a small amount of paid ads through Facebook ads or Google ads to the site. If you get traction... There's that means there's some signal there, which is referred to as smoke. And, you know, the the old saying where there's smoke, there's fire. The only caveat I'll say to that is back to what we were saying in the beginning, which is like, is 2% conversion traction or is 10% or is 1%? And I think I remember asking around when we were thinking about doing this for the brand we launched. And it is important to get some benchmarks of like how good of an email sign up. Like Nick Sharma was like, dude, if you get a 50% email sign up for a product, like that is going to be a huge product. If you're getting like 15%, that's not really that compelling. And so I think like a good scientist, 
you actually have to have a pretty dialed in hypothesis that you're actually yep. trying to test with. In my case, what we did was we looked a little bit at nominal email signup, but what we were actually doing was testing four brands. And, and that was like, <clears throat> let's call it brand name this. Let's, you know, and, and that was our way of figuring out. And what is this we for Kahani or growth assistant? For Unbloat. Yeah. For the, for oh, the oh, business. So we got had, it. we had Puforia wasn't working. We wanted to shut it down and we were like, we thought we had a good formula and we tested Puforia, Rhythm, Feather, Lightness, Unbloat, and then Unbloat. Like we, we tested a few aspirational things and Unbloat was just way better than all of them with the same ingredients, the same general branding other than the name. And so, so interesting. For, for $500 or maybe $1,000, we got to get really good conviction on the name uh, for what we were launching. But it, that's not the same thing as validating the business or not validating the business, just to be clear. Right. Totally. There's another clever one that uh, I saw, which is, do you know Ankur Nagpal? He uh, founded uh-huh. Teachable. So mm-hmm. founded Teachable. Now he's working on Ocho Wealth, which start their wedge product is like solo 401, 401ks for solo entrepreneurs. And the way he got validation for this business is he posted a tweet thread about a friend's business that does solo 401ks and he described what the solo 401k is and then in his cta he said if you want an intro to my friend let me know his friend was him he got a ton of dms asked by entrepreneurs asking for an intro and that was the validation for him to go build the product (laughs) yeah i love it um and then there's one other i want to share and then um we can move on to startup ama which is this is this has worked really well for authors but i think it the the idea or at least the concept is is applicable really to kind of any business or project also so there's this idea of what i call the content ladder so how do you size your bets bets in terms of time or money appropriately for the validation you're seeing so how do you start with a tweet that turns into a thread that turns into a essay that turns into a book so just a few examples that i found crazy you know, uh, Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel, like uh-huh. be- best-selling book now. People think he just, you know, what was uh, lightning in a bottle, wrote this thing and instant success. This guy has been working on this book for a decade. It came, it was an expanded version of a shorter free report that he wrote on his blog years ago mm. called The Psychology of Money. Similar type of story, Malcolm Gladwell, Tipping Point, one of, one of his most popular books ever. Tipping Point is just a book that was written based on a New Yorker article that uh, got a ton of traffic. That article was called The Tipping Point. So like, it, it, this, is the, this is the model for every writer. Uh, by the way, Mark Manson, uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, he had an article called The not Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, and a publisher had approached him saying, hey, dude, you should write a book. Like A lot of people are doing this now, and he's like, right. I have no idea what I'm going to write about. And they were like, just look at what your most trafficked article is ever. So I think just the, the, to me, an interesting awesome. lesson there is how do you just keep sizing the bet with time or money more and more as you get some level of signal? I, I think the whole back to the newsletter thing, like I, I every time an entrepreneur says, I have this idea for a B2C thing of blah, blah, blah. I'm always just like, cool, why don't you start a newsletter around it? it the, the You'll learn your customer better. You'll have a, some basis to launch something off of. You'll validate whether or not people care about this issue or not. The other thing I like about it, by the way, is, and I don't say this, but I'll say it here, is it's going to prove to you how hard shit is. Because yeah. <laughs> getting a newsletter, getting a, a 10,000 people to sign up for a newsletter about whatever you think is a really big problem they have in the world and topic, if they if they weren't going to sign up for that, you'll see how hard it is to get Twitter 
people out there, you know, in, in Twitter signing up, you'll see how hard it is to get people who they're going to unsubscribe from your thing. So it actually puts you through the ringer, especially for first time entrepreneurs who haven't experienced like how challenging the stuff can actually be to get going. And that's the other reason I love it. I think my favorite one for B2B businesses is like make a 10, 15 slide deck and set up 10, 10 to 20 meetings and pitch it, pitch the thing, sell it and see if anybody wants to buy it. And even if at the end totally. of the call, if they go, yeah, I'm in. You go, okay, cool. Like, uh, thank you so much for buying that. Like it's going to be three months till it's ready. Uh, yeah. and, and that's fine. Or, or be very honest with where you are, but still sell them something. Totally. And on the B2B side, I was actually reading <clears throat> a really good story about, you know, Buffer, which is like the, the social media scheduling tool. Uh-huh. So, so basically, I think they do a lot more than this today, but the original idea was just a better scheduler for sending out tweets than what Twitter offered. And the guy who founded it, he wrote this post in 2011 where he was basically like, this one feature that Twitter had for scheduling, I thought that could be a whole product where the whole focus was there. I had a landing page that I sent people to. They put in email addresses. I got a bunch of emails. So then I added another page, which was for people to to uh, say the product isn't here yet, um, but when it comes in the future, I'll let you know. Then once he knew there was enough validation there, he added another page where it was basically you put your email address in, the second page goes to pricing, and there are three pricing tiers. There was a free service, a $5 a month, and a $20 a month, and he looked for all that traffic. If any people would say they'd pay for the service, he got 500 people to say they'd pay $20 a month, and then he started actually building the product. Uh, so I, I think at the and, end and of the I think day, what, there's a couple underlying things. And I, this is, I keep giving you shit about the plunge. Like <laughs> if, if a hundred people or 500 people will pay $20 for a product, the world is 8 billion people. The United yeah. States is 330 million people. We even live in such a wonderful, large $20 trillion economy that you can actually feel pretty confident that if you could get 500 people to pay for something, you'll probably be able to get 50,000 or, or even more potentially. Right. And I think that's, I think the second thing that's underlying all of this that I think is just important to call out is people oftentimes don't want to do stuff like this because they're afraid, like their ego, like there's a, I don't want to put myself out there. Like this, the, the classic feedback from, uh, the LinkedIn founder, Reed Hoffman is like your first product version of your product should embarrass you. Like the first version of Kahani was embarrassing. It was like, it was a freaking circles on a page that we wanted people to click on. Right. And so you do have to build that muscle of, of like, whatever you want to call it, shamelessness slash just, you're willing to go out and put yourself out there and own it, own where you are in the journey. And I think I want to call that out because it's, it's easy to talk about testing as like a academic subject. In my experience, the resistance is usually coming from someone going, no, 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 I have to be fully dress rehearsed and everything until I can finally get that thing out there. And it's like, that's not how it works. You got to get out there ugly. Like it took Adrian really a lot for me to go, dude, we're going to sell this. I have no idea what the follow-up email is going to be. I have no idea. Like the website is like half a page on on Squarespace. Like it's just not how she's used to operating, right? Most people totally. are used to operating that way. And so I want to call that out because I think underneath all of these things, you have to gain comfort with, incompleteness information tiny pieces of things to actually kind of get the ball rolling and it stays even as a company gets bigger you you can get an initiative out again cheap and fast to 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 make something work or not totally yeah i I think this idea of just in general as a founder getting really good at operating in the gray and people who haven't been founders being very uncomfortable with operating in the gray which is basically your whole job as an early stage founder is a massive point Last uh, last thing I want to talk about before we wrap up for the day is uh, we're doing a little startup AMA and we, uh, as uh, I mentioned last episode, we have gotten bombarded with emails because 
I decided to make either the really smart or horrible decision of asking uh, our listeners to write into us, which I'm going to do right now, by the way. If you're, I don't even know how long we've been recording, but it feels like 50 minutes to an hour. If you're an hour into this episode, it means you're a great listener. It means you clearly are getting value from this podcast. It also means we want to meet you and talk to you. So shoot an email to the crazy ones at morningbrew.com. Just write hi in the subject line and we'll get a conversation going. It'll take you 10 seconds, but we get to build a relationship with our listeners. So anyway, we got a bunch of questions from our listeners and I'm going to read one of them and I want to get your thoughts on it. This is from Larissa Loden and Larissa said, so my friends and I debate this a lot, which is sharing profitability. What are the pros and cons of sharing your profitability? Do it company-wide, only with leadership, only the owner? What have you done and what are your lessons learned about sharing information with your business? Do you want to take the con side and I can take the pro side? What what do you actually, what's your actual answer to this? I mean, I feel like my view is, um, I'd say my general policy has always been share as much as possible. Uh, But did you guys share profitability with Morning Brew? We shared profitability in the early days. Um, Why'd you stop? Because at some point, I want to say part of it was when we were bought, it was part of um, being within a larger company. Uh, We didn't necessarily think it was something that the acquirers would necessarily want. But I think also part of it was just you have less control when you have 300 employees versus 20 employees. And I think my biggest, just to quickly say with profitability, my biggest fear, and this this would be a fear-based action, my biggest fear would be if we share profitability of Morning Brew, if people look at what the profit is at Morning Brew and they say, damn, they're really profitable. Why are they not paying their people more? Like to me, that feels like an easy um, pushback. That's the other side I would say is if you want to build a culture where people are treated like adults and they also feel like owners of the business, sharing as much as you can about the business is a really important thing. So yeah. I actually would say, I am pro sharing profitability, but there are very real trade-offs to consider. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think the cons are information getting leaked out to the world that you don't want to get leaked out because obviously the bigger you get, there's employee things there. I think there's and just some of talk stuff- talk about that for a second. If if like I don't know, even just use the example of Ampush or whoever. If you were sharing profitability and an employee ended up sending that to some reporter. Like what, what do you view as like the possible repercussion of that, of it being public? I think like it's competitive intelligence for people who are your competitors. I think it's, it could just be like a weird data point that you don't want that, you know, people start to compare data points externally and go, are you growing? Are you not growing? Like just information you may or may not need out there that doesn't help the the cause of the business. If you have clients, if you're an ampush, like I, I, your issue about employees, I, I would push back on. And say, you got to have the, the big boy or girl conversation with them that says, look, there's a market for labor and I pay you at the top of that market, right? And what you should, like, I believe you should pay in the top quartile of the market. And that doesn't, why would I pay you more money just because the company makes more money? The whole point is I want to pay you really well based on your value in the marketplace, which is sort of the, to me, the, the client conversation is a slightly different one, <laughs> which is. If clients aren't knowing your profitability, they may or may not uh, feel like, you know, that's fair or unfair, depending on the nature of the relationship and and some other pieces of it. But, you know, I think I'm I'm very pro sharing everything. 
Um, interestingly, not all like you know, not all the CEOs of the companies that I'm that I'm building as part of Gateway feel that way, and so like we've had to kind of figure out the comfort zones of everyone and and make it make it a clear thing. So are they um, diff- three different policies for your three gateway businesses or no? More or less. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're they're all agreed upon, but like it's not. You know, there's certain things I think are important, and other ones where I'm like, I don't think I need to. You know, this doesn't have to be a part of the culture. But I, I agree with you. The more you have control over it, the better it is. I mean, I, you know, in Ampush, we were focused on revenue growth for the first five years, and man, everyone knew our revenue every day. I knew it. It was in channels. It was talked about. And then when Red Ventures invested, they were like, guys, screw revenue. We don't care about revenue. We just care about yep. EBITDA. And and then we started worshiping EBITDA. And it actually took us probably 12 to 15 months culturally to change the mindset. But then we told everyone the EBITDA, like they would come into to the business review meetings and go, this is the EBITDA of my relationship. This is how I'm going to grow the EBITDA of my relationship. And I thought the value of people knowing what was moving the bottom line and actually orienting around it, we, that's how we bonus people. Like it became such a powerful force and I think I think the fear of a lot of founders, especially the earlier the company is, you're like, well, what am I? I'm just this little company. Somebody's going to see what I'm doing and they're going to realize like yeah. every entrepreneur feels like they're getting away with something a little bit in those first couple of years, especially you're like, ooh, I just I just made this thing up and it's making money. This is weird. I, I don't want to yes, share that. It's, the, tell it's everyone. the imposter syndrome equivalent of a small business. Totally. Right. And, and, and you're just like, and what I found, I like when you drop that and you kind of go, no, like. A person who's coming to work for me for a salary to be in this experience is choosing that very purposefully. If they wanted to be in my shoes, they would be starting my business. Some might join and leave and start a competitor or whatever. But like, I just think there's a tremendous value in sharing all the information and letting people make good decisions and good problem solving around the actual problem you're solving for. Then related to that is alignment, right? It's like, yeah. if I'm pulling for something and you're pulling for something different because I'm not giving you the information, like what that's, that's just me shooting myself in the foot. So it you sounds know. like you're pro sharing profitability. I'm definitely pro it. Yeah, no yeah, question. Yeah, and, and I'd finish by saying... Uh, oh, by the way, everyone I, knows it. Anyone who can do basic math knows it. <laughs> so the idea that you're not sharing it actually seems totally silly. Like condescending. Because, yeah, they, could, they can... They know... Most people know what it costs you to deliver the thing you're delivering, and they know what the yeah. overhead... I mean, people can estimate it. They can figure it out. And also, by the way, I know this is a little bit different. It's not apples to apples, but your point about it's possibly a risk because... Uh, your partners or customers could look at your profitability and be like, oh, you're you're overcharging us. It's like, I mean, when you're a public company, you're reporting your profitability, you're reporting your bottom line. Like I would assume the customers of every public company aren't coming, knocking on their door being like, hey, you have to charge us less. And that totally. just comes down to having a differentiated product that people feel like they're getting way more value than what they pay for. Yeah. I mean, MasterCard and Visa have 50% operating margins. Nobody can replace them. So it's wild. <laughs> so, okay. So the, uh, the the crazy consensus is sharing profitability is good, but understand the trade-offs that it brings with it. Uh, with that, anything else before we wrap up, Jesse? Nope. Have a great week. Have a great week, everyone. And remember to email us at thecrazyones at morningbrew.com. Please blow up our inbox. I promise we'll respond. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.